Bodhicitta is the one subject that is taught from the first moment that one enters onto the path until the last moment before one really engages in completion stage practice. And it is a primary and necessary fundamental foundational meditation and absorption that one should remain in from the first moment upon hearing the Dharma to the, to the last moment before one actually enters into nirvana. There should never be a moment when the concept of bodhicitta, the idea of bodhicitta, is part of your life and part of your heart. So what is bodhicitta? Bodhicitta uh, means the great awakening. It has to do with the awakening mind. A bodhisattva, one who, has, who is engaged in the practice of bodhicitta, is one who is an awakening being. And the bodhisattva actually takes a vow by which they do not actually go into Buddhahood. They, they, remain, they move further and further along what are called the bhumis, or steps, further and further into this precious state of awakening. And um, upon taking the bodhisattva vow and remaining fully absorbed in that vow and beginning to accomplish that vow, one then begins to enter the first bhumi, which is a very major step. Uh, a very major accomplishment, and then from there goes to the second, third, fourth, fifth. And at the tenth bhumi, one is then able to step very easily into Buddhahood, into full, full Buddhahood. However, the bodhisattva who was on the tenth bhumi remains uh, away from that and holds back and does not take that final step in order to remain in the world for the sake of sentient beings, appearing in a form that is of benefit to sentient beings, uh, and being able to teach and, and guide and, and that sort of thing. So we are practicing or, and uh, studying this bodhicitta, which is so precious and so important. Many of the religions in the world have the idea of compassion. That idea of compassion is stated in, in various ways. But in the Buddha Dharma, compassion is not only one of the, one of the teachings it is considered to be one of the two main legs or eyes or wings, however you want to put it, of the Buddha Dharma, of the path of the Buddha Dharma. There is the wisdom and the bodhicitta, wisdom and compassion. So these are the two legs of the path. And it is considered that if one cannot accomplish compassion, if one cannot accomplish the bodhicitta, then really whatever else one is doing on the path amounts to very little. The bodhicitta is the cornerstone, it is the key, it is the essence of development in that the, the, uh, the bodhicitta, which is the practice of compassion, when we see it in a relative environment such as this earth filled with material view and material phenomena, in this world of duality and relativity, when we think of bodhicitta, we think of it as a practice in order to attain, but actually in truth, Bodhicitta is the very display or essence, nature, of, of the ground of our being. Uh, Buddha nature, Buddha is not just a man, a historical man that lived a long time ago. Buddhas are not just those little statues, some of them fat little guys and some of them fancy guys like that. <coughs> Buddha is our nature and it can be considered the primordial ground of being. It is that essence self, suchness. Very difficult to describe. In fact, that once one describes the nature of Buddhahood, then one is actually left 
the nature of Buddhahood. It, it cannot be described uh, in such a way that one remains stable in the, in the view of Buddhahood. Because once conceptualization and discrimination actually occur, then the meaning of Buddhahood is changed. So ultimately, Buddhahood can only be understand in one, un understood in one's meditation practice. The closest we can come is to describe Buddhahood as being the fundamental ground of being. It is neither empty nor full. It is both. It is neither. It is neither uh, silent nor filled with sound. It is both and neither. It is neither form nor formless, but it is both and yet neither. Buddhahood is that ultimate mystery that cannot be described in terminology that we understand because our terminology requires duality. It requires us to separate ourselves from that which we describe as though we were an audience. And, and, and describes us, it, it requires us to discriminate and conceptualize. Discrimination and conceptualization are not in accordance with the true view of Buddhahood. Because when one realizes and gives rise to that precious awakened state called Buddhahood, one cannot detect any separation. One cannot determine um, definition. One cannot judge where one thing ends and another thing begins. If we were to view from the point of view of that fully awakened state, as the Buddha was in when he described himself as being awake, we would not be able to determine where one, one being ended and another being began. That whole concept would be lost in the state of Buddhahood. Bodhicitta, therefore, while we think of it as the practice of compassion and something that we should attain to, well, we only have that idea because we are in a fundamentally deluded state, in a separated state, believing that self and other are in fact separate, believing that relative view and the view of Buddhahood are somehow separate. So that's how we view bodhicitta, as something that we do, something that we practice. But in fact, the bodhicitta is the very breath or first movement or display or dance of the Buddha nature. If the Buddha nature is like the sun, radiant in every conceivable way, then uh, the, Buddha, the uh, uh, bodhicitta can be considered like the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun cannot occur without the sun in the same way bodhicitta cannot occur without Buddhahood. And in the same way, Buddhahood does not occur without the rays of the sun. I mean, uh, the sun does not occur without its rays. Therefore, Buddhahood does not occur without bodhicitta. These two are inseparable. They, are, they cannot be determined as separate in any way, shape, manner, or form other than through the dialogue of confusion, which is how we talk. Uh, dialogue, uh, language based on separation and delusion. So this bodhicitta is in fact then our nature, as much our nature as Buddhahood. We are in our nature this fundamentally compassionate reality. Buddhahood itself has no other capability other than that of bodhicitta. Yet it has within itself 
all potential, unborn, and yet spontaneously complete. This is the great mystery and cannot be understand, understood in language. Our language betrays us in this way. Even as I speak these words, there's probably a little voice in some of your heads that's saying, it's not, doesn't add up, not possible. How can that be so? I haven't seen it, I haven't smelt it, I haven't touched it. And that's true because the five senses are extensions of our ego. And they are meant to interpret and measure our egocentric experience about which we already have pre-constructed beliefs. But Buddhahood has nothing to do with that. Buddhahood is simply the primordial wisdom ground of being. It contains all potency, all potential. It is unborn and yet spontaneously complete. How to understand that? Certainly not with the intellect. Only experientially, eventually, as one moves forward in one's practice. And the bodhicitta is like that too. Within the bodhicitta is every potential. The bodhicitta is inseparable from Buddhahood, as I've said, in the same way as the sun's rays are inseparable from the sun. It is the same essence, same nature. So within the bodhicitta, that is also our nature, is all potency, all potential. And yet the bodhicitta as well, while it is, sponta is uh, spontaneously accomplished and fully complete, is as yet unborn. When we understand the language of bodhicitta and begin to understand what it is that bodhicitta actually is and put it into our practice, at first there is a kind of distance and a kind of confusion that naturally occurs. But that occurs because we ourselves have not had that kind of experience yet. We have not tasted our nature and we have not tasted what it's like when the mind remains absorbed and stable in that nature, how it is that this bodhicitta then naturally arises. Literally, if somehow you could magically remain absorbed in the fully awakened state the way the Buddha was when he described himself, himself as awake, or I should say the way the Buddha is, everything that you would do, every activity that you would engage in, every interaction with any sentient being that you would have would naturally be completely in accordance with the bodhicitta. So the, the teachings that we have uh, from uh, the path of Dharma, from the Buddha himself, these teachings tell us that, in fact, when one has, a, has attained realization, when one has attained the state of awakening, no matter what, now this is the big if though, if one has attained enlightenment, if one has attained this precious awakening, then all of one's activities from that time forward are naturally that of the bodhicitta, no matter what they look like. Now again, during the course of this retreat, I have described that for Americans particularly, Sometimes the activity of the lamas can be confusing because the lamas will sometimes engage in wrathful compassion. Sometimes, uh, and this has happened to me, and, and I know my, for my students, uh, it has happened to you as well. Um, sometimes the lama will see, because of the karma and the, and the, the love and the uh, concern, loving concern between the student and the teacher, 
the Lama will see in their meditation that some terrible obstacle has arisen in the mind of the student or in the path of the student or in the life of the student in some way. Maybe it's an obstacle to the student's life. Maybe it's an obstacle to the student's path. Maybe it's um, simply something like a brick wall with a where the student will meet up with their habitual tendency and not be able to make much progress. Then oftentimes, if, if there is the right kind of karmic relationship, if the causes have been given rise to and if the devotion is there and all of the different catalytical necessities are in place, then the Lama will engage in wrathful activity in order to cut this obstacle. Let's say, for instance, and this often occurs, that the Lama sees that within the student's mind some negative non-virtuous karma has been catalyzed or been drawn to the surface or begun to ripen. Then the Lama will see that this could be dangerous. And oftentimes the Lama will be very wrathful. How does that work? Well, first of all, the Lama will do that skillfully in such a way that eventually the, the Lama knows what the student's capacity is, you see. So someday, eventually, even if not at first, the student will fully understand the Lama's gracious activity. And even though wrathful activity has occurred, the student will remain fully devoted. Fully devoted, fully respectful, fully loving, and confident in the Lama's kindness. That pure inner posture is, the, is a posture of, of true devotion, purity, spirituality in, in every sense of the word. That, um, how can you say it? That kind of confidence and Vajra courage, because it takes a tremendous amount of Vajra courage when the Lama takes all of your habitual tendencies and all of your issues and smacks you in the head with them to continue with love and confidence. Now, if the student is lacking in a certain kind of virtuous karma or virtuous ripening to benefit them at that particular time, and, and, and also perhaps is having, having the ripening of some non-virtuous karma, that interaction between the Lama and the student may turn it around and can turn it around just like that. Because of the student's capacity, primarily, even in the face of such a difficult situation, to remain fully devoted, fully confident, and fully vulnerable to continue. Vulnerable, vulnerable means opened up and not protected. In order to continue on this path of compassion and wisdom, and that determination, that Vajra courage, is such a tremendously virtuous inner posture to remain in that often this negative tendency or negative event will be cut. And this has definitely happened to me, as I've described uh, once or twice before, where my own teacher, uh, out of the clear blue sky with no seeming cause, began to be very angry at me and accused me of something that I, I mean, I would never do. I mean, it's just so far, it would be the equivalent of my accusing you of murdering babies with chainsaws. 
It would, it's just so far from reality. It could never be true. So my teacher began to really be angry at me and just scolded me and raged at me to the point where I was shaking in my shoes. I was unbelievably terrified. And then when he felt this obstacle had been cut, he just stopped and he said, okay, well, we're done now. Try not to get mad. <laughs> See you later. Sort of like that. <laughs> Try not to get mad. I was trying not to make my own gravy, if you'll excuse the expression. I was terrified. I've never been so terrified in my life. And uh, I barely shuffled myself out of the room. And then I realized that physically I felt completely different. And I realized something had changed radically. And I went to my other teacher, who was also here. Two of my main teachers were here. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, His Holiness saw an obstacle to your health, and he cut it. And interestingly, from that time forward, I felt about 10 years younger. The ultimate facelift. <laughs> <laughs> and my love and respect and regard for my teacher and also the courage to let him have his say with me, you know, the, the courage to really make myself spiritually vulnerable to his care grew by that situation because I knew in my heart that he had brought me great benefit. And so that's the kind of thing that, that one sees on the path of Vajrayana. And when we begin to practice the bodhicitta, we become more in tune with the idea that regarding the suffering of sentient beings, the great bodhisattvas are willing to do whatever it takes. And so we, in our practice, should follow accordingly and use them as our example. Because when we look at the world today, and we look at the suffering of sentient beings, when we study in the text and we see that all sentient beings, as numberless as, as grains of sand, grains of dust on the earth, are revolving in the six realms of cyclic existence, and they are suffering horribly. <clears throat> horribly and needlessly. Because other than our own habitual tendency, our desire and our own distorted perception, there are, there are no chains that bind us here. And so the, the Bodhisattva is moved to tears thinking that watching the suffering of sentient beings and watching that even here in the human realm where things, realm where things are pretty terrific and we do have the capacity to practice Still, we are suffering from old age, sickness, and death, and there's nothing we can do about it. <clears throat> when the bodhisattvas see that, they consider that enough is enough, and they feel a heartfelt courage or concern come up within them and, and their determination to be of benefit to sentient beings and to do literally whatever it takes is therefore born. So now we are on the path of the Bodhisattva. And how should we engage in that path? We really don't know how that looks, how that should look in our lives. The mechanical appearance of it, this is a big dilemma for Westerners. I've, I've noticed this myself. Westerners vibe with the idea of compassion. We seem to understand it. Why is that when so many of the ideas of Dharma seem foreign why is it that the idea of compassion is somehow more palatable or more understandable? Well, probably because we've seen the idea before culturally in other religious systems with which we are better acquainted. So we have the idea in our minds anyway. 
And I think also it's because our country, we have this sort of national identity, this country, America, for those of you that are Americans, we have this sort of national identity of being a great country or a, a, a rich country, a prosperous country, a grand country. And therefore, we feel that we are in a position to minister to others. It's just kind of almost like a subtle national identity that we all seem to have. We know we've got more food than a lot of the other guys. We know we've got more clothes than a lot of the other guys. We know we have better conditions than a lot of the other guys. And so we feel ourselves to be sort of in a, in a, in a national or group way aware of our capacity to be an elder brother or sister in the world, on the world scene. So I really think that that's part of us. Our national identity is definitely a factor here. But where the terrible confusion comes in is that we don't know what bodhicitta should look like. When we, when we actually get down to the nuts and bolts of our practice, something is missing. Something just flies the coop somewhere. It really doesn't quite connect in our minds. So we try to draw on these ar archetypical pictures that we have in our culture. And one of the archetypical pictures that we have is kind of like a saintly archetype. We have this idea of a saintly a archetype. I don't know, was it, does it come from medieval times? Probably, I would say so. I would say that we are slow, so slow to change some of our ideas uh, certain, not our fashion sense, no, we're, we're pretty quick on that, and um, you know, not uh, our idea of how to get educated and how to remain current in certain things in the world, but certain subtle archetypical ideas take a long time to change. And we do have, have this idea that compassion should be practiced and that we would look somehow like, like saintly. The idea that uh, a bodhisattva has to be something that's well, I don't know, what did medieval, medieval saints look like? Maybe a little anemic. You know, like if you, if you were too robust, maybe if you had a pint too much blood, you wouldn't look, you know, very saintly. You'd just look, you know, like Tashi over there. He's a monk, but does that look like a saint to you? I mean, look at this guy. Looks like he could belly up to the bar, you know, knock back a few. You know, I, I, I don't think I pass for a saint either. I, I, you know, I think I'm, I look like a makeup expert or something, you know, <laughs> a beautician. So we have these pictures and, and, uh, this, and our saintly image is, well, somewhat anemic. We have this idea that saintly people should never really let out a good guffaw, uh, have absolutely zero capacity to find anything truly amusing. Um, most especially, not themselves. And Lord knows that saintly types have no capacity to laugh at themselves. In fact, all they're able to do, uh, for the most part, is to roll those eyes ever skyward and look pure. Does this look pure? So we have some kind of weak, ridiculous idea, actually, of what sainthood, ought, of what compassion ought to look like. Well, I don't think compassion looks like that at all. I think compassion can look like a banana, if that's what sentient beings need. I think compassion can look like a puppy dog, if it brings comfort to sentient beings. 
I think compassion can look like exactly whatever it takes without judgment. That's what I think compassion can look like. And actually all the teachings about the great bodhisattvas is that, is that they will literally appear in any form, whatever, in order to bring benefit to sentient beings. They, uh, and even in the, uh, the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which I hope each and every one of you will buy a copy of at some point. In that particular text, there are many prayers, and these prayers are beautiful and just heart-wrenching. And they sound something like, uh, you know, uh, let me return as a bridge so that sentient beings may cry. Let me return as food so that sentient beings will be nourished. Let me return as shelter so that sentient beings will be protected. And it's this heartfelt cry to return in whatever form necessary in order to be of benefit to sentient beings. So I don't think that a bridge or a banana or uh, whatever it takes it will necessarily look like some anemic, saintly thing. Instead, compassion, I think compassion can be pretty exotic and meaty stuff. I think it can look like meat and potatoes. I think it can look like whatever it damn well pleases, so long as it gets the job done. Now, how are you going to practice bodhicitta? That's the question. What's it going to look like for you? Do not make the mistake that so many people make by trying to adapt a saintly demeanor where everything is love and light and we have no real feelings, only the fabricated ones. All of those neurotic little ulcers in our personality are all neatly covered with band-aids and we're not seething underneath them at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the mistake you want to make that's not even what compassion looks like why should it what difference could it possibly make to any other person really and truly that you look saintly how is that going to help someone else unless that's exactly what that person needs to see and then as a bodhisattva that's what will happen But I have to say, for the most part, my experience has been that love is not neatly tied up in little bundles or appearances. It doesn't fit in a box necessarily. Love, we, we should all know by now, if not, we're just stupid. Love is not convenient. <laughs> it is just not convenient. Love is messy. Love requires a great deal. And it doesn't have any particular appearance because it appears as exactly what it needs to appear as. So don't make that terrible mistake of doing something that's the equivalent of putting, you know, plain dress up, putting on your mommy and dad's clothing and walking around like, oh, I'm a bodhisattva now. That's not it. To adapt a certain demeanor that you feel is some sort of compassionate ideal has nothing to do with it. Brings no real benefit. All it does is stroke your ego. And in one way, it's the most self-absorbed thing that you can do to selfishly use bodhicitta as a costume for yourself. Instead, toss all those images out the window. And do you think uh, that uh, bodhicitta should always appear as sweet words and sugary kindness? No. No. No, if sweet words and sugary kindness 
always worked, if that's all it took, well, we could go to something like, uh, you know, Dale Carnegie or something, you know, modified to fit this particular need, and we could all learn how to speak words of love and light and how to be so sweet that everybody loved us. If that's all it took, how easy it would be. I mean, really, we could, it, it'd be a no-brainer, wouldn't it? I mean, really, it'd be no-brainer. Somebody could write you a list of, you know, uh, statements and responses. You could have it all keyed out. You could carry one of those little laptop computers around. Whenever you got hit with a situation you didn't know how to practice bodhicitta in, you could just type it up and come up with a, you know, see the blue speech, give the blue aura. You know, it could work. But that's not how love is. That's not how love is. Love is messy. Love has to reinvent itself every single moment because it's constantly looking to see what is needed. The moment love becomes a concept, it is not love. The moment you have a concept about what love should look like, you are not loving. Love is not the way you think. So, what does it look like? How do we then practice this bodhicitta? Well, as I have stated during the course of this retreat, and as I will continue to remind you, the most important posture to begin in, I mean, everybody's got to start from where they are. The time and space grid that you have to start in, that's, that's your place, that's your posture, that's your now. You have to start there. Now, that may seem like some kind of well, uh, restating the obvious. I mean, I mean, thank you for restating the obvious. Of course you're going to start where you are, uh, O oh, queen of the Department of Redundancy. Uh, but <laughs> don't you understand that most people never start exactly where they are? To obtain that kind of self-honesty, to be genuine enough on your path where you start exactly where you are. No baloney, no games. You just kind of look and see what your habit and patterns are, what your practice has been. You really look inside yourself and see what your qualities are, honestly. And it's not going to be good news, necessarily. Some of it will be good, but not all of it. I, trust me on this. And face it honestly, but you look at it like the way a child looks at, it, at a world it doesn't have the capacity to conceptualize. So here's the trick. When we look at something, we judge it immediately. We don't know how to look at something that we don't judge. But a child, when it looks at the world, it looks at the world with a sense of wonder. It has no idea, in a way, what it's looking at. I read in a book a perfect example of this. For instance, you look at a one-year-old child. Uh, they might be outside on the grass, you know, playing in their yard. And they'll look up and they'll see an airplane in the sky. And the one-year-old child has no idea what that is. They'll stop dead in their tracks because they're... Have you ever seen a little one-year-old do this? It's a, it's a low-flying plane. Stop dead in their tracks. Like, they can feel this vibration. You know, they feel this. They have no idea where it's coming from. They don't even know where to look. And then they stop like that, and then suddenly they just sort of chance up, and it's just like, you know? And they see this thing, and they don't know it's a plane. They see it. They point, go, oh, 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 you know? Or shiny, it's shiny, and it's moving and they remain completely absorbed in it until it reaches the end of the sky. And then it's gone, and they just go, wow, you know, in baby talk, of course, you know, whatever their particular 
way of describing that is. But now by the time a child is three years old, and that's just two years later, by the time a child is three years old, the child is going to hear the noise, know where to look, look up at the sky and go, airplane. Now, back to whatever I was doing. That wonder, that freedom to reinterpret, to actually see everything, is gone. Literally, from that point on, we never see another airplane. So it's like that with all of our ideas and concepts, and particularly our concepts about ourselves, our concepts about love, these subtle concepts. We have very little understanding as to how to look at ourselves and to see ourselves fresh and new so that we can determine how to give rise to the bodhicitta within our lives. That takes a great degree of self-honesty. I'll tell you what, if you are not willing to see yourself and whatever poop you have produced and whatever negative habitual tendencies you have and not really actually willing to see that as well as and equally with your good qualities. There's no way to really actually know yourself. You'll be like the three-year-old who says, oh, airplane. From that point on, the moment that unwillingness occurs, you, know, you never see yourself again. Not ever. So be willing in an honest and real way to really look at yourself and see where you are. And from that point, you can freely and honestly begin to practice the bodhicitta. That is a very important first step. The next step that is very important is you have to, have to make yourself understand why to practice the bodhicitta. So we've gone over this during the retreat, but again to reiterate, you must examine first of all the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. The Buddha states that all sentient beings are suffering, that they are suffering due to desire, that there is a cessation to suffering, and that that cessation of, of suffering is brought about or is presented in the Eightfold Path, and in our tradition it is condensed into the path of wisdom and compassion. So we engage in the method for those reasons. And you see the logic in that? All sentient beings are suffering. They're suffering from desire. However, there is an end to suffering, and this is the method. The, there's like a logical, that is characteristic of the Buddha's teachings, and there's a reason for that. Because in, in the Buddha Dharma, you're not being asked to do anything on blind faith. You're being asked to think it through, and once it seems reasonable and logical and true to you, then you're able to practice because that kind of logical activity is appealing and it seems realistic. It makes sense to us. So then the next thing we have to do is we have to examine the thoughts that turn the mind. And again, these, these, if you're interested in hearing this, even if you weren't on this retreat, you certainly may hear the tapes of my teachings during this retreat. You may buy them in the gift store. So that's available to you. These, these um, thoughts that turn the mind towards dharma are contemplations. And we are taught really interesting and thought-provoking and very profound and deep sets of concepts and ideas, such as really examining, for instance, the six realms of cyclic existence and all the faults of cyclic existence. Really examining that 
closely and truly so that we can understand is extremely important. Once we examine the faults of cyclic existence, we can see that cyclic existence is a bit like a drug. And therefore, we can steal ourselves you know, in a way that we could not if we did not understand how narcotic cyclic existence actually is. Plus, we begin to understand uh, that cause and effect, the equation of cause and effect, is a real and actual truth, and that it is absolutely and certainly true in every way within our lives, that literally every experience that we have or have ever had was brought about by a cause that we ourselves brought about that actually cause and effect relationships, the entire equation between cause and effect, arise interdependently. They rise not separately, but as one. Arising interdependently means that if you have created a cause, then just as surely as anything can be sure. Now, I don't want to play those little Zen-like mincing words with you, but just as sure as it can be, if you have given rise to the cause, you will live through the effect. Trust me on this. It can be modified, it can be delayed, it can be subdued, it can be dealt with effectively through certain kinds of practice. But you still will, it, will realize the effect of any cause that you have produced. Now, learning that, learning that particular teaching and really examining cause and effect relationships, really examining that virtuous karma, for instance, brings about happiness and good result, uh, virtuous causes, rather, virtuous activity brings about happiness and good result, that non-virtuous activity, no matter how it looks at first, always brings about unhappiness and suffering. An example I want to use quickly of that is, let's say, if you stole a car. At first, you might have a great time riding around in the car. For, you know, but eventually, that event will either ruin your life, if not this one, but you know, in some time, some time if not now, then it's surely in the future. It will make suffering and unhappiness for you and, you, and it will not be worth it. But you won't know that because you won't connect unless you have the training that cause and effect relationships are actually related. So that's another thing that we learn, again, on the Buddhist path, is the great skill, if we practice this, of thinking in full equations. Do you know that most of the suffering in our lives is because we cannot think in full equations? We think like chickens, you know? Buck, buck, bagok, I'll do this. Buck, buck, bagok, I'll do this. Over here, this is happening. Over here, this is happening. You know, I'll do this and this is happening, and it's all to us. It's as disconnected as whatever. We just don't get it. But the Buddha Dharma teaches us to think in full equations. So now we're thinking in full equations, and we're turning our mind towards Dharma, and that is a necessary step towards really giving rise to the bodhicitta, because we have to be able to realize cause and effect relationships in order to do this. These are mental disciplines that I'm suggesting that you engage in. You must be asking yourself, well, what has this got to do with compassion? 
I mean, how can this possibly make you feel more compassionate? Well, one of the things that you need to understand in order to understand how this will help is that compassion is not an emotion. Bodhicitta is not an emotion. It doesn't exist on that dense a level, if you can understand. I mean, it's just like not that dense of a thing. It's um, the emotional level. Emotions are actually a reaction. If you take perception, delusion, duality, confusion, samsara, hatred, greed, and ignorance, all of those things that are characteristic, uh, characteristic of samsara, and you shook them up in a jar, the bubbles that you would get, like the bubbles from soap, are roughly the equivalent of emotions. Emotion is like the result of conceptual proliferation, sort of whipped up into a very exaggerated state. That is emotion, it is reactive. Bodhicitta really has nothing to do with that. So when we begin to give rise to the bodhicitta, we do so first of all through mental discipline. And then as we begin to engage in the practice, we have some understanding of the suffering of sentient beings and why we should engage in loving concern for them. When we examine the thoughts that turn the mind, we really tune into the sufferings of samsara. We really tune in as well to the fact that we have lived so many lifetimes that literally anyone that we can see or hear or even think of or see, even see a picture of, we've lived so many times that it is extremely likely, in fact, a sure bet that that person has been your own kind parent in some previous life. That's how many times that we have lived. And yet, these beings are wandering in samsara just the way a bee circles around in a jar if it's caught in a jar. With no hope, no, no clueless, you know, just absolutely clueless as to how to create the causes by which suffering might end. And they are wandering in this terrible suffering. Once you learn that in a disciplined way and you train your mind not to ignore that, because we like to ignore that. We like to just try to kind of surf on the sensual pleasure of the moment. You know, we like to enjoy and try to get up as high in our daily routine as possible so that we can just surf on the moment of experience. We don't want to think about the condition of sentient beings. So this mental discipline is required in order to do so, in order to be a serious practitioner. And if you don't put in the time here, if you cut corners here, your practice will never be the same. It'll never be up to snuff. You can't cut corners here.
Thank you.